so I, I've titled today The Grace Dichotomy, and uh, there's going to be basically three types of people in the room today. Uh, you're going to have some people that are going to stand on a uh, certain view of grace that uh, has a very intellectual mindset behind it, and then you're going to have a group of people that are going to have a viewpoint on grace that has a very emotional viewpoint behind it, and then you're going to have a third group of people who are like, I don't know why I should care, all right? So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident, I, I was telling my wife, I was telling my son, I was even talking about it with uh, Michael last night, that I, I'm confident I'm probably going to step on some toes today, but I am, um, I have my Air Maxes on, so it won't hurt, all right? It's, it's going to be, it's going to be gentle, I hope, so, all right, so. In order to talk about grace from the perspective that I feel led to talk about grace, I need to cover a couple of things. And the first that I want to do is I want to jump into this dichotomy, right? Now, dichotomies are not something that are foreign to us. Think about this. Like, we're divided in the way that we view grace. Like, we are divided on everything in this world, right? Lines are drawn in the sand. You have your football team, your soccer team, your baseball team, your political party, your political candidate. I mean, and, and, and if you think about it, right, when it comes to a lot of those things, it is okay to throw logic out the window and root for your team no matter what, right, okay? You, you can do that when it comes to sports, right? When it comes, when you start rolling into politics, like I personally start having a hard time with throwing an intellectual consistency out the window uh, in order to just kind of get my party or my politician into office, right? Uh, there should be some type of consistency among us in the, in the way that we approach uh, uh, policy, in the way that we approach the way that people behave. And, and I just want to say that, that this, the Word of God, it's important for us to, to not take a viewpoint and hold it above Scripture. We cannot take a viewpoint that we've bought into and hold it above Scripture because that demeans Scripture. And ultimately, the really dangerous thing is, is that it diminishes the authority of Scripture. So anytime that I come in and I'm, and I'm preaching the Word, I'm hoping to be consistent to the Word of God, not to an ideology that is at work in the world around us. And sometimes that hurts some people's feelings. Uh, I, what I want to do is be consistent. So that's, that's my goal today. Let's take a look at the dichotomy of grace for just a moment. The first side of that, and probably the, the more popular from a position of not necessarily more popular because there are more people that believe it, but more popular from conversation standpoint, is the idea of irresistible grace. Now this comes from the I and Tulip. It is a Calvinist approach to grace. And just in case you're you know, a little bit interested. These five points of Calvinism that, uh, that, that people, including people here in the church, may hold to, okay, uh, they were not actually developed by John Calvin. Uh, uh, when, he, when, when Calvin passed away, his successor uh, was a Bible teacher who raised up another young man, uh, 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 Arminian, uh, Arminius was his name, and he kind of contradicted some of the things that John Calvin had taught, and they presented his followers in Holland to the government of the day, 
presented uh, five points that they kind of said, hey, these are five things we think that Calvin got wrong because the, the influence of John Calvin was so huge in Holland at the time. And then they came back with the five points of, of Calvinism, ultimately kind of took on the tulip, the T-U-L-I-P. Again, you may not care, but the I inside of that is irresistible grace. So let's just talk about irresistible grace. And I am not here to preach a message on irresistible grace. So you may go, oh, Pastor Jim, man, you left out some really good stuff with irresistible grace. I probably did that on purpose, okay? So this, I will argue fairly, is going to be the intellectual argument, right? People who hold to irresistible grace are going to come from a more intellectual position when they are talking about grace. It is used to summarize what the Bible teaches about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of sinners. So there is a direct correlation between the word grace, okay, and the act of salvation when we, when we are talking about irresistible grace. Uh, some of the key tenets here, that man is dead in his trespasses. These are some of the scriptures that are used. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Next idea is that God saves according to his mercy. Titus 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, God saves according to his mercy. Psalm 3, 8, this is the idea that salvation is all God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So the tenet here would be salvation is all God. He's the one that handles it. He does all the work on it. And then ultimately that God does as he wills. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Right? So at the end of the day, God saves by grace. And this is our kind of our anchor verse for today here in Ephesians chapter 2, what we just read. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now the question that we have to ask inside of this idea of irresistible grace being that God's going to show up, he's going to present himself, and that the, the sinner is going to, the, the, that God, because of his will, is going to tear down every level of resistance so a person is going to have no choice but to accept Christ in that moment, right? Okay, does all of this evidence that's laid out indicate that God saves who he wants? That's the, the kind of the summation of the argument. God saves who he wants. Now, I will tell you that part of my problem with, uh, with, with this doctrine just in its uh, traditional approach is that in order, and, and this is just me, I, I, I kind of have this, this logic issue, right? If this, then that. And that is that if God chooses who he saves, and though we don't really talk about it, does that mean that those he doesn't save, he's chosen to go to hell, right? 
and, and that part of the conversation is not one that is traditionally held because if we have that conversation, then that means that the God that we serve has preordained who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's easy to say that God has preordained who's gone to heaven, right? That makes everybody feel good who's going to heaven. But then when we have a loved one who hasn't accepted God, does that mean that God somehow doesn't love them enough or in his perfect will has decided he doesn't want them? So one of the arguments that's made is that this idea of irresistible grace is innate in us and it's proven by the way that we pray. Because when we pray for a son or a daughter, we pray, God, save my son or daughter. And because we pray this way, that proves that we innately understand that there's nothing that the person that needs to be saved can do. There's nothing that I can do. Only God can do it, and this is the reason that we pray this way. So let's walk back through this real quick. Man is dead in his trespasses. I, I agree with that. I believe that man is dead in his trespasses. God saves according to his mercy. I agree with this tenet. I believe that God saves according to his mercy. Salvation is all God. I 100% agree with this. There is nothing that, that this is the whole part, the whole point of why we get saved is because we come to the place where we realize I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. I need help. I'm never going to be good enough, right? God does as he wills. Absolutely. I do believe that God does as he wills. Now, here's where I diverge slightly, and that is this. I'm going to argue that God w God's will is to be chosen, all right? When it comes to salvation, God's will is to present salvation in such a way that we choose him, all right? So, we go back to this statement. Well, is it not innate because we view, that we view it this way because we pray, God save my son or my daughter. And my argument to this would be, then is it innate that the Holy Spirit is an object? Because we always use that terminology like, you know, well, you know, the Holy Spirit does what it wants to do, right? We refer innately, why? I would argue because we have we, we are surrounded by, I wouldn't necessarily say we're always surrounded by bad teaching. I would say that a lot of times Christians are, don't, don't have enough teaching. We don't get enough information. We don't have a good enough perspective of what's happening. It's very clear that the Holy Spirit is a person, right? And yet, historically, the church has referred to the Holy Spirit as if it is a tangible object, not a person of God. And so I think that this argument for me indicates not that we innately know something, but that perhaps we need to be, we need to transform the way that we pray, right? That what we, what I, what I want to be praying is I want to be praying, God, do what only you can do. Present the opportunities, right? Every day present the opportunity. I pray that you would wear them down, right? But ultimately, I believe that those people that I care about need to come to know Christ because they want to know Christ. Now, you have irresistible grace, and then you have what I'm calling irreversible grace, okay? Irreversible grace. And this is the emotional argument, okay? And a lot of people land on irresistible grace because they hear grace presented this way, and they think, well, I don't, I, I don't want that, right? And then a lot of people land in, in, in this type of uh, grace because they don't want the irresistible grace. This one's, gonna, this one's going to have a lot more uh, of a mindset around how I 
feel versus tuning into a, a lot of scripture. Um, look at how Google defines grace. I thought this was interesting. The free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. And underneath it, it gave synonyms, favor, goodwill, generosity, kindness, benefaction, uh, beneficence, and indulgence. So the idea that grace is this ability, this indulgence, this benefact, this, this benefit that, that, that like I, I get this thing and there's nothing else attached to it. And I think that that definition is actually probably a pretty fair definition to how a lot of people view grace. Let's go back, right? Because the argument that gets made comes back out of this anchor verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the very same verse that's used to try to create a mindset that, man, you, you get grace because God wills it, is the same verse that others will use to say, well, you get grace because there's nothing you could do to earn it. So it's just constantly being thrown at you, right? So there is nothing you can do to escape grace. Now, do I agree with this? Fundamentally, yes, but there's a problem. This is very dangerous language. Why is it dangerous? Well, because there are things that we can say that are true, that if we don't expound on them, if we don't bring some clarity to them, people will fill in the gaps on their own. And, and though we may say that, man, God's grace is, it's, it, it, it surpasses everything. It's, it's never going to end. There's always going to be more grace for you. And then we walk away from that conversation. Somebody goes, man, I can just do what I want, right? I mean, Paul addresses this. He says, so do I just sin all the more so that grace can abound all the more? No, you don't do that, right? And so m many, many will say in this argument that this grace does not empower us to sin, but they will also say that God doesn't see our sin. And, and, and ultimately, what that leads to is it leads to people taking on uh, mindsets like this. Yes, the Bible says sexual immorality is sin, but God doesn't keep a record of my sin, so I need to go with my heart. I need to go with my heart, right? Because there's no in-depth teaching around grace. There's no in-depth teaching around how I behave, right? This becomes the mindset, and, and this we're seeing birthed right now, I think, at, a, at, a, at an incredible rate around what, what I would call the West, Western societies, inside of the Christian church, and that is this idea of grace, and it's that, man, it just doesn't really matter because God's grace is sufficient. He's going to cover my sin no matter what. Is God's grace sufficient? Yes, God's grace is sufficient. Does that mean that I just go with whatever I feel at the end of the day? No. I mean, listen, every letter of the New Testament, right, is a letter dealing with conduct. Every letter addresses the conduct of the believer, so why would every letter of the New Testament deal with the conduct of the believer if the conduct of the believer didn't matter, right? This is going back to that, like, like where I kind of tried to open up with like this, this like we've got to apply this equal logic, right, inside of all of our arguments here. And there's, there's, an, there's an inconsistency if we're going to look at Scripture as a whole and go, yeah, man, the, the writers are constantly coming back and addressing the conduct of the believer and yet God's grace is just so amazing, it doesn't really matter. And then when you try to address people who have bought into this, 
okay? They begin to use words like, no, 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 that's sin management. You don't get to manage my sin, right? You don't get to step in. You're not God. It's, you're not the judge. That's sin management or that's behavior modification, right? And, and so then you have a group of people who will bemoan the church online and go, oh man, the church has just hurt me because they were constantly trying to change who I was, this behavior modification. Don't they know that I'm free from the law, that the law is not the thing that binds me? And, 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 and they're getting these ideas from moments, right, where, where we're presenting these portions of truth, but we're not putting the, enti- the, 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 the portion in context. And so the idea becomes that if you're a child of God, then anyone that comes against you isn't for you, right? And what makes you a child of God? Well, I just declared it. I'm a child of God. His grace is sufficient. You're not going to manage my sin. I'm not changing who I am. God doesn't have that expectation on me. If it says it in the Bible, the Bible is wrong. And at the end of the day, if you're coming at me and telling me I'm living in sin, well, that's, you know, the Bible said that there will be those that will persecute you for your faith. And you go, man, that's ridiculous. But that's, that, is, that is a mindset that our, our, our communities have right now. And that is like when you come in love and say, hey man, I think that the behavior that you're walking in does not honor God. This is the mindset. Whoa, you're trying to persecute me. I'm a child of God. Like, I, you know what? The, you know, Jesus was right. He said you were going to do this. And so because of all these little statements taken out of context, there's this whole new gospel. And remember, I mean, the writers use this language pretty frequently. Remember that even if they come in my name or even if they say, Lord, Lord, or even if they come in the name of Christ or if they're presenting any gospel other than the God, why? It's because the conduct of the believer matters. And there are all these people that are coming in and taking their little pieces of it and creating a new gospel. Look here at Romans 8, verse 31 and 32. This is one of those that, that, that contextually gets abused. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so this verse right here will be the anchor verse for a pastor in a sermon, and he'll talk about all the things that God can do. And one of my favorite things to hear pastors say on the back end of this verse is, I'm going to preach someone free today, right? What are you preaching people free from? Well, if I'm preaching you free from conviction, right, then I'm, in, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in putting you in the bondage of sin. Because conviction is not comfortable, right? Conviction is not comfortable, but the real bondage that's tearing the, 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 the sinner down is sin that we have to be set free from. And so if what I am preaching is a grace that says, look, you don't need to feel bad about these things. There's nothing you can do about it, right? Then I might make you feel better in the moment because you might go, oh, good. So like I can just keep doing what I've been doing and God's going to be good with it, right? Now, again, all of this gets dicey. It's the reason why, you know, talking about grace is such a, a, a delicate subject because somebody goes, well, God's grace is good enough for all of this. Yes, God's grace is good enough for, to cover all of our sin, but there is a repentant heart that has to be a part of the equation. And so this grace theology ultimately is about you being justified, okay? Now, the view of grace... This view of grace, I believe, runs contradictory to Scripture, and those that believe it hold it above Scripture, ultimately. 
right? They will hold their view of grace above Scripture. And this is a common practice, I think, in so many different facets of life. People will hold their political campaign above their religious beliefs, right? I mean, how many times do people go and vote for a candidate? I know stepping on toes here, that, that ultimately that candidate's platform will lead people away from God, but because that candidate is a part of the political party that we are for, we just go, well, we're okay with that. Like, I'll make that compromise. And, 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 and my, my reminder that I constantly come back to is that we aren't identified by any of those things. We are identified as children of God, Christians. We're in a, in a community of believers. And so I say it all the time, but you ultimately have more in common with a refugee from Syria that is a Christian, a Christ follower, than you do with a doctor living down the street from you that resents the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so we do not have to fall into the dichotomies of this world, and we don't have to fall into the dichotomies of the church. We can be people who believe the Bible. And so this is ultimately a conflict of consistent logic. And I would argue that this is the reason that doctrine in general is even shaped and formed and discussed is because that we as, as human beings have this conflict of consistent logic. I, the best way that I could kind of, I, I thought of a couple of ways to, to kind of describe this. Um, here, here's, a, here's a real touchy one, right? Um, so two years ago, we had protests in our streets in America. And you had two groups of, you had two primary views. One was, you know, we need to listen to the protesters. And another was, we need to stop the protesters, right? So tear gas gets broke out, protesters get pushed back, and you have two groups of people. Some going, look at this, this is tyranny, this should not happen. And another group of people saying, yes, this needs to stop, it needs to end right now. Fast forward two years, you see a completely different group of people in Canada not in America this time, protesting, right? And you have two, two views. The view was they shouldn't be protesting, do whatever it takes, tear gas them. They tear gas them, we're glad that that's happening. Another group of people saying, how can you tear gas them when you tear gas them? That's tyranny. Here's the, here's the thing, is that both of the viewpoints flip-flopped. The people that were for the tear gassing two years ago were the ones calling it tyranny two weeks ago. And the people who were against the tear gassing two years ago were advocating for the tear gassing two weeks ago, right? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a touchy situation, right? Because now we're starting to deal with topics that people don't want to talk about in church, right? And people will leave the church and send me a message saying I'm too political. I'm sorry. Let's just use some logic inside of this. Like, right, where, where, is, the, where is the consistency in what we do? Let me bring it even more, a, a little bit, a little less uh, uh, dangerous. Let's bring it into your home, right? I've got four kids, blessed beyond measure, like beautiful, beautiful family, great home. Imagine for a moment, though, that I were to treat one of my children in such a way that by doing a certain action, I punished them, grounded them, took away whatever it was that they cherished because of what they did, 
And then a year later, two years later, 10 years later, let me tell you with kids, it doesn't matter. It could be 100 years later. Another kid does the exact same thing, and I go, ah, oh, it's no big deal. That was great. What do you think happens internally? Right? Right? There is a divide that begins to happen. There, because there's an expectation that within the home, we are treated equally. Why? Because mom and dad love us equally. And if we don't treat our kids equally, our kids begin to have conversations going, well, mom and dad love you more. Are they... They treated you this way. And you go, man, listen, if that was not your home, by the grace of God, that you're blessed, but you know somebody who was, that was their home, where there was a divide and one kid was treated different than the other. We've all had some touch of that somewhere and we know the damage that it causes, right? So, so when we are looking at scripture, I have to encourage you, and I will be doing this over the course of the entirety of this series, we cannot come into a conversation around something like grace and go, no, I believe what this guy wrote 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and I don't care what the Bible says. And I'm not arguing that anybody here would do that. I want to make sure, though, that we aren't doing that. So let's take a look here uh, we as a church, what we can do differently. So, the, the, and the truth is that the grace extended to bring the Israelites out of slavery brought them to Jericho. So, uh, skip that thought. I just want to go to this. What was grace to a New Testament Christian? I think that we can, we can pull together a really good doctrinal response to grace if we will just pause and look at what did grace mean when it was written down, Right? So, so we, we understand, and I talk about this all the time, that definitions are constantly changing, right? They're constantly, some of it's evolving and some of it's just malice, like just changing the definition of a word, right? Uh, sometimes, though, that just, that just happens, right? So grace is used over a hundred times in Scripture. What did it mean when they were reading this term? Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the word grace here is the word uh, charity. We get the word charity. Sometimes grace is just charis. Okay, so instead of a T-I at the end, it's an S. Okay, so this is by grace. It's graciousness of act or manner. Now, that is a literal definition of the word. Now, remove all of your extras and just think about that term being used in that context, okay? So, when they heard this, when they read this, this word was not something that was introduced in Scripture, all right? In the Greek-Roman Empire, there was actually a relationship between the wealthy and the poor, and that relationship was called charis. So charis, grace, was a unique relationship between a giver of gifts and the recipients of those gifts. This was a, this was a normal relationship. So when they saw this word, they weren't thinking about irresistible grace and irrefutable grace and all these things. They were thinking, okay, you're talking about a relationship in society where somebody will graciously give to somebody else. That's what they're reading, 
That's what Paul's communicating, okay? So a common person would oftentimes be taken advantage of by wealthier elites, right? Has that changed? No. That, I would not argue that that has changed, right? People who have power and money tend to be consumed by power and money, right? Okay? And so they will step on whoever they need to step on, say whatever they need to say to maintain that control. I have to tell you, one of the craziest, uh, uh, I guess, like, uh, plays that I have seen on this in a while is uh, around a lawsuit that uh, Facebook has been in. And the lawsuit states that uh, the fact checkers, right? So you have a group of people that are fact checkers. And so somebody says something and then a fact checker comes in and says, is what they were saying actually the truth or not? And then that fact checker comes out and goes, you know, well, that was mostly false or partially true or whatever. They, they lay out their thing, right? And so there was a defamation case that has gone to court and the defamation case said that, look, the fact checkers came out and said that this thing was false and it was 100% true. So the fact checkers that Facebook employs, right, to be the gatekeepers of truth, track with me, lied. And Facebook in their response, right, so they'll do a written response before uh, you know, before you actually go into court, in their written response said, it is well known that the fact checkers are actually just presenting their opinion. Why in the world would you say that the fact checkers are the ones that are going to make sure that misinformation and disinformation is managed, and then when you get over here, you're gonna go, well, they're actually just giving their opinion unless you're trying to protect yourself. So the, 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 the idea of protecting power, protecting resources, that's not something that's new to us and it's not something that disappeared a thousand years ago. So it was very common for somebody who was in need to be taken advantage of. Now, if you were lucky, if you were lucky, you, a clients, and so just using the Greek term here, uh, actually the Latin clients, which is where we get the word client, okay, would find a patronus, this is a patron, to partner with in a caris relationship, in a grace relationship, okay? I want to start a business. I know that if I go to the bank, the bank's going to take advantage of me. Maybe I'll find somebody that is more benevolent than that. And if I did, I entered into this, this Karis relationship, okay? And it was based on mutual trust and loyalty, loyalty and respect and gratitude, okay? So if I was the patron, okay, or I mean, if I was the client, I would show support for the patron by supporting their political views, supporting their economical views, and their social views. The idea was this. There is a reason why they have found success so that they have the resources to bless me and they model the type of character that they're willing to help others. So perhaps they know some things that I don't know. So because I don't know them, I'm going to trust them. And so I'm going to support the things that they are supporting. And in return, the patron to the client would protect the legal interests, the economical interests, and the social interests of the client. 
And so there was an exchange, there was a relationship that was taking place. So the client benefited from the patron's social connections. So it was not simply just like, okay, so you want to start up a, it's not Shark Tank, right? It's like, I got an idea for a business and you got three people that are, you know, got a lot of money. They're like, I'll give you $500,000 and you give me 50% ownership of it, right? And they're like, oh, I can't do this too much money. Then get out of here, right? It's not what it was like. It was, I, I have faith in you. I want to help you as an individual, right? Okay. And the benefit for you isn't just financial now. Now you know the people I know. Now you walk in the circles I walk in. So we're going to be having an event. There's going to be a gala. You're going to be my guest, and you're going to meet some people that you didn't know. They're going to, it's going to help you, right? Now, this was called the gift of good, this inside of this relationship, right? And it would be made with the understanding that the gift could never be repaid. Now, Paul's writing, talking about grace, Okay, he's using this term. What is he talking about? He's talking about a relationship in which a benefactor shows up and says, I'm going to help you, and I, I know you're never going to be able to pay me back. So the agreement never had repayment as part of fulfillment. It was instead about the relationship. And so the client's role was not to repay it, but to exhibit and demonstrate loyalty. Now, this demonstration was called pistis, and this will matter in just a moment because you're going to see that word show back up in that Ephesians 2. So it reflected a grateful, powerful, energetic, and living belief that the patron would actually do what they had promised. So me as a client, somebody was offering this grace to me. I with everything in me, lived my life in a way that I wanted people to understand, I believe this person is going to do what they said they were going to do. So my life, it exhibited that. So when I was doing life and walking around, people didn't question, right? They wouldn't go like, well, you know, do you, do you believe that this thing's going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. I believe, I believe that they will do what they said. And how do I prove that? I am a supporter of them, right? Okay, so now I want to, I just want to peel one thing apart for you, because I know in your mind you're thinking, well, what if they were an immoral person? An immoral person is not in a relationship like this. That's the elite and powerful person that is immoral, that's taking advantage of people. So you're by default not in this grace relationship if the benefactor, the person that's trying to, the, the, the patron is trying to take advantage of you, you're not in a chorus relationship. You're not in a grace relationship. So remove that from your thought. So now, the other side of this is that the relationship lasted a lifetime. You could never pay it back, but you were in relationship for the duration of your life. They also understood this, that accepting a gift also meant accepting the obligation to the giver. Now, Paul was an educated man. Rem remember this. Paul was schooled at the, in, in the best of the best school, right? He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He talks about this. Like, like he, when, when the message of Christ is kind of rocking and rolling across the territory, oh, we can't have this. He's showing up and persecuting Christians even to the point of death. People, people years later right, show up at Christian revivals, and they find out that Paul is the one ministering, and they run in fear because his reputation was so fierce, they thought that it was a setup and that they were going to come in and be killed, right? So Paul 
comes from that position of the elite. So Paul's not taking a word here, and I, I don't think he does this at in any form or fashion, and then just even remove that, and, and our faith that the Holy Spirit is the one that's leading and guiding these writings. I, I want to make the argument that, that Paul and the Holy Spirit are fully aware of what the New Testament reader is reading when they see this word grace. They get it that inside of their communities, these are the best types of relationships. So <clears throat> go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace, this chorus relationship, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? What is the, what is the chorus relationship? It is a gift giver. They give a gift knowing that you can never pay it back. The expectation is what? That you would believe in them, that the things they say are true, right? Okay, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith. What is this word faith? It is pistios here. It is where you get the word pistis. It is faith. Faith. So faith and grace are not things that exist separate from each other. If you're in the Ricaris relationship, the grace relationship, then you are going to be you're going to be uh, you're going to be acting with faith faith is going to be a part of your character look here in mark chapter 9 jesus says he answers them oh faithless generation how long am i to be with you how long am i to bear with you bring him to me right what is he saying to them he's saying you are not operating with faith we are supposed to be in this grace relationship we are supposed to be in this relationship where your needs are being met, where you have the gift of eternal life, and yet you do not operate with this faith, right? So you aren't expected to have faith if you aren't in a charis relationship. If you're not in the relationship, there's no need for faith in that, right? But if you are in the relationship, if you're following Christ, then it makes sense that he would say, you faithless generation, right? You want the benefits of grace without the relationship that is grace. You want the benefits. You want what comes with it. I am saved, right? And whether that is because I fully understand who I am in Christ and the power of God, or whether it comes from a perspective of, man, I can do what I want to do. Let's go and have a good time, right? If you are not operating in a position of faith, where your life is amplifying that, then you're not walking in that relationship properly. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 here, we'll read a few verses. And that on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So Jesus is with them. There's a storm. From this physical appearance, the boat could sink. They're in the midst of chaos, right? Okay? Midst of chaos, your boat's being filled with water. What's your response? Look at here. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Right? This seems like a very reasonable response, right? I believe that Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. He's the Messiah. He can do, he, we've seen some miracles. He can handle this, but he is asleep. And so what is my response? My response is to freak out. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is what we would expect from the Messiah, the Son of God, right? God incarnate. This is what we've been, this, the prophecies have been out there now since Isaiah, that God's coming in the flesh. We've been looking for the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. It, this is Jesus. We expect him to walk in this type of anointing and authority and power miracles we're seeing every day. Our boat's about to sink, and we're going to die. We need Jesus to step up and do something. Jesus, you need to wake up, right? And he said to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? What was the faith? The faith was that we're in a relationship, and my promise is to be with you. My promise is to be for you. I'm going to be the one protecting you. You don't have to do the protection, right? You just need to be in a position of trust and be for me. I'll handle protecting you. You handle walking in faith. And you know what that means? That means that we step out of the natural. Because why? The promise is supernatural. The promise is supernatural. So I'm not going to freak out going, Jesus, are you awake? Are you looking? Are you paying attention? Well, by his very nature, he is paying attention. By his very nature, he is aware of what is happening. And what is the, 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 the analogy? The analogy for Jesus is, have you still no faith? Look at this. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Right? So here's what I'm going to argue in closing. Grace is a relationship extended to us in which God promises eternal life and we live by faith that he will fulfill his promise. And so the invitation to be saved that we make in church services or maybe over a cup of coffee is not this, this invitation for you to somehow be exempted out of a difficult scenario, right? Because I'll remind you that the grace relationship that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt brought them to the walls of Jericho, to giants is how they described them, right? When you're sitting there in school and you're praying, God, help me pass this test, that grace that gets you out of Algebra 1 gets you into Algebra 2, That grace that got you the promotion is the same grace that got you the employees that hate your guts. You see, that relationship is not a relationship that says that the storm's not coming and the water's not going to fill the boat. That's not what that grace relationship is about. The grace relationship is that he'll show up like he said he'll show up. And I don't have to live in fear about that. I can declare it and live by faith. Let's stand to our feet. At the end of the day, if you walk out of here and you go, man, I still hold to some of these tenants around grace. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. I'm not here to shame and condemn you. I think there's a lot of value to be held in understanding how a New Testament reader understood this. 
And for me, it, 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 it changes. It changes my view of grace. And I see grace as, as a relationship. Not just some cover-up. Not just some blanket. Not just some box that I get put inside of. It's a series of promises and it's protection. And in that relationship, there's an expectation that I walk out faithfully that which I've committed to. And so that's my invitation to you today. If you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life, and, and, and maybe this whole time you've always heard this presentation that's like, you know, you just need to, you need to accept Christ because then you'll be saved and it, and it doesn't matter. And you're like, man, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, how, how does that work? That's, that's really not the biblical narrative, right? There is a change in the way that we live our lives, and we should receive that. We should be okay with that, right? We should be okay with the fact that there will be things that will, under conviction, become made known to us, and because we're in this relationship and because we have faith that God will do what God said he will do, I will work to make those changes in my life so that I look more like him, right? And ultimately, can I tell you, looking like him means that you become the type of grace-filled person that is investing in other people's lives. That's what's gonna lead people to Jesus. Our prayer teams are gonna be available at the back to pray with you if you need prayer. The scripture says if you're sick in body, if you're in need, go to the elders of the church, allow them to lay hands on you, to pray with you. We believe in the scripture, so we believe in prayer, right? If you wanna know Jesus and you wanna talk with them, if you wanna talk with me, let me know. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and I thank you for that charis, that, that charity, that grace that shows up in this life while we're living to, to make an investment that we can never repay. Lord, help us to have our faith built, our trust to be increased, that, that we would lean on your promises, that we would be able to say, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter if there's water pouring in the boat right now. God is in control. Help us to evaluate the way that we pray, the way that we interact with you, and the way we interact with other believers. Help us to be consistent in our logic when it comes to interpreting Scripture and holding fast to the Word of God. Lord, we thank you for all you do in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. I hope you have a great week. Don't forget, if you need prayer, you can get that in the back. Otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday. Go change your world.